Good morning, Altoona Regular Baptist Church, and welcome. Today is Sunday morning, May 17th, and this is our morning service. And we'll be in John 4. John 4. I invite you uh, to grab your Bible and join me this morning in John 4. We'll be looking at the first 30 verses this morning, John 1, or John 4, verses 1 to 30. While you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you, get up, go, grab a Bible, follow along as we work our way through these verses, this passage, this morning. John 4, verses 1 to 30. Let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll dive right in. Father, we praise you this morning for who you are. We praise you for the ability to meet, to gather, to worship. We praise you for your word, that it is true and that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in Jesus Christ. We pray this morning as we look at this passage that your spirit would work in each one of us for your glory, through your word, that you would mold us, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, and that you would change us. And we pray that you would be honored in this time, in Jesus' name, amen. John 4, 1-30 to Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you speak truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. And no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him.
I want to start with a question this morning. And that question is this, what brings you satisfaction? What brings you satisfaction? Different things satisfy different people. Some people are, are OCD. They like to have everything in a place. They are satisfied when they go to bed at night when everything is aligned perfectly. There's the same amount of space between their wallet and their phone and their keys. And they're all in straight lines. Everything is clean. Everything is put away. Maybe if you're a golfer, maybe it's that, that perfect shot. Maybe that's what brings you satisfaction. That's why you go out and you golf. That's what you're chasing. Maybe it's a food or drink. Maybe it's that, that perfect cup of coffee. You just take a sip and it just satisfies. Or maybe it's the perfect piece of pizza or whatever it may be. What satisfies you? But the problem with all those things that I just listed is that they are fleeting. You see, they might bring satisfaction for a moment, but, but it's just a moment. When you go to bed and everything is aligned, and you wake up the next day and you go about your, 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 your work, your schedule, everything's then out of line. You have to clean again. You have to align things again. In golf, you might get one good shot on 18 holes and the rest are not good at all. You're chasing that perfect shot, that feeling, that satisfaction, and, and then when you get it, you have to line up and hit it again. A cup of coffee, it's not going to taste exactly the same the next day when you make it. That pizza is not always going to taste exactly the same. Whatever it is, it's, a, it's fleeting. It may bring satisfaction in the moment, but it's satisfaction that then leaves. That you have to continue chasing. In our passage this morning, Jesus touches on our desire to be satisfied. And really what he does to the Samaritan woman is he opens her eyes that there is true satisfaction. There is satisfaction that is everlasting. Satisfaction that, that, that never leaves. And our only hope of true satisfaction is found in Jesus Christ. You see, as we work our way through this passage this morning, what we'll see is that John 4 is not about the Samaritan woman. It's all about Jesus. In John 4, we see Jesus' humanity and Jesus' deity, side by side. It's in this passage where Jesus, for the first time, confesses that he is the Messiah. And a powerful statement to the Samaritan woman. So the point of John 4 is, is satisfaction. It's that satisfaction is found in Christ alone. This morning as we work our way through this passage, we'll see a journey, a conversation, and a confession. First thing we see here this morning is a journey. John 4, verses 1 to 6, a journey. John 4 starts out this way, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, Though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Just to give us some context, if you remember last week in John 3, we have the um, confrontation between Jesus and his disciples and John and his disciples. And what's going on is Jesus and his disciples, they've left Jerusalem, they've gone out into the countryside, and they, they've settled uh, on this river, and their, their ministry is growing. And they're in Judea. But now as we come to chapter 4, it's time to move on. Jesus' ministry is beginning to transition back to Galilee. First thing we see is the reason why they choose to leave. It says this, When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than 
than John. There's a couple things to note here. Likely, the reason why Jesus decides to move on is because not only does he have the frustration of John's disciples, but it's drawing negative attention. Having Jesus and his growing ministry and John and his thriving ministry side by side, this unique, this new baptism that these Jewish leaders are uncomfortable with, that they're un, 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 uh, uh, they don't understand, they're attracting attention. And so likely what's going on here is in order, in order to avoid confrontation, it's come time to move on. They've accomplished their purpose. Avoid unnecessary conflict. But secondly, notice this, that, that Jesus and his disciples baptized more disciples than John. Last week we talked about how Jesus' ministry was, was growing and John's disciples were getting jealous. And, and this week we see just how much it's grown. It's grown beyond John's ministry. As we saw last week, though John's disciples worry, John is rejoicing in this. This is his whole purpose. John the Baptist is his, he must decrease while Christ increases. And that's exactly what we see going on here. Jesus' ministry has, has blossomed, it's grown beyond John the Baptist's ministry. We also see a note here in John 4.2 that Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. Jesus is teaching. He's, he's controlling the area, but it's the, the, the disciples who are doing the baptisms here. But it come time to comes time to move on. They're heading back to Galilee, as verse 3 tells us. Over verse 4 as a detail. But he needed to go through Samaria. You see, the road back to Galilee leads straight through Samaria. There's three routes to get from Jerusalem to Galilee. One, you can go by the coast. One, you can go on the eastern side of the Jordan. Or you can go straight through Samaria. The road straight through Samaria, it's the quickest way to get back. It's the most direct route. In fact, Josephus notes that, that despite the, the hate between the Jews and the Samaritans, come festival time, when, when Jews are, are making this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, many of them would just take the shortest route. It makes sense. It's the shortest route. We want to get there. We want to make good time. So the word needed here may simply hint at the fact that Jesus wanted to get back as quickly as possible. And yet, I think there's also another hint in here. Not only is this the quickest, the most direct route, not only does it make the most sense, but Jesus has a divine appointment. There's a divine appointment with the Samaritan woman. Verse 5, So he came to a city of Samaria which is called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's about noon. Jesus and his disciples have been traveling. They come to a well. It's a chance to rest. There's a city nearby. So as we see in just a few verses, Jesus' disciples go into the city to get food. Jesus is weary, and he rests. I think it's important to, to pause here and to note Jesus' humanity. As I mentioned at the beginning, in this chapter we see Jesus' humanity here at the beginning. He's weary, he's tired, he's hungry, he's thirsty. And yet at the end of the chapter he says, I am the Messiah. Jesus was fully man. In this chapter we see that, that he is tired. Other chapters, in, in Luke 2, 51-52, we see Jesus as a young man. He is learning. In Matthew 4, verses 1-4, to Jesus is hungry. John 19, 28, Jesus is thirsty. John eleven thirty five, 35, he shows emotion. Jesus is a man. 
He's fully man. Like you and I. He knows weakness. He knows struggle. He knows what it is to be tired, what it is to be hungry, what it is to be thirsty, what it is to be sad, to weep. And that's good news for us. Because Hebrews 4, 15-16 tells us that we have a perfect high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows. He understands. I think that's important to note here because we know where we're going. We know what Jesus is going to say at the end of this. We know, we know who Jesus is. But it's important for us to note here that while Jesus is fully God, He's also fully man. He's weary from His journey. He sits by the well to rest and His disciples go to get food. So verses 1 to 6 set the stage once again. Let us know the details. What's going on? Where are we? Then as we come to verses 7 to 15, we see a conversation. Now we see in John 4, 7 to 15, a conversation. As Jesus is sitting, as he's resting, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. There's a few things that are a little bit off here with this woman of Samaria who comes to draw water. The first is this, normally women would not go by themselves to draw water. They would go in a group for safety, for conversation, for companionship. Secondly, noon is an odd time for a woman to be there alone to get water. It's the hottest part of the day. Normally they would go at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day when it's cooler. But alas, this woman is here in the middle of the day by herself. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. A couple other things to notice here. Jesus is by himself. His disciples have gone on. And yet he talks to this woman. That might not seem like a big deal to us, but in this day, men did not talk to women. It was not appropriate to talk to a woman in public, much less when you're alone. Jews did not talk to Samaritans. Jews did not stoop to drink from their water pots. In fact, we see her shock and her response. In verse 9, And the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. As we read this, if you were reading this for the first time, that wouldn't seem like a big deal to ask for a drink. It makes sense. If you're tired, if you're thirsty, and you're by a well, and someone has a bucket, you ask them for a drink. But to this woman, it's shocking. You're a man. I'm a woman. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Don't you understand social customs? This isn't right. This is odd. This is uncomfortable. I think it's important for us to understand the rivalry between Jews and Samaritans. As it says here, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But why is it? What is this rivalry all about? Really, when it comes down to it, it's not just a social issue. It's really even a religious issue. The Jews and Samaritans are different socially, and they're different religiously. It's more than just prejudice. In order to understand the, the rivalry, the, the, the problem here, we have to back up hundreds of years. The kingdom of Israel split following the death of Solomon. And Omri, king of the northern ten tribes, 
picks a new capital in the north and he calls it Samaria. Eventually, over time, this entire region comes to be known as Samaria, and the people in it, Samaritans. Then in 722 BC, the northern tribe of Israel is conquered, and they're carried away into captivity. Part of that conquering, what the conquering nation would often do, is they would bring in, then, colonists to settle the land. To intermingle with those who are left to, to avoid confrontation, to avoid rebellion. So that's what happens here. As the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered and, and the, the elite are carried away into captivity, colonists from foreign lands are brought in to intermarry with the remaining Jews and to settle the land. To avoid, to avoid rebellion. Over time, they, they intermarry. Eventually the southern tribe is, is carried off into captivity as well, and they come back. And as the southern tribe comes back from captivity, we see all this rivalry between in, Hag in, in the book of Haggai, with Zerubbabel and Joshua. They have these run-ins with these people. Nehemiah and Ezra constantly running into the Samaritans. Samaritans eventually separate. They set up Mount Gerizim as a place of worship, to worship Yahweh. This is where the religious differences begin. They consider only the Pentateuch to be authoritative. And that's important to understand because a lot of times we can see this rivalry and can think, oh, just, that's, just, that's racist or that's prejudice, just get over it. But the issue here is more than just prejudice, it's more than just social, it's religious. To the Jews, Samaritans are not only defiled half-breeds because of intermarriage, but, in today's language, they're heretics. They reject half the Old Testament, over half the Old Testament. They reject God's revelation. And that affects their religious beliefs and practices. So as you can see, this issue, it's more than just a social issue. It's a religious issue. This is a deep issue that divides the Jews and the Samaritans. So you can understand her shock when, when a Jew talks to her. Who is it? Why are you asking me water? We don't have dealings with each other. So verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus responds and he says, If you knew the gift of God, if you knew what God wants to give you, salvation, eternal life, and if you knew not only what God wants to give you, the gift of God, but who I am, you would give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Have you ever seen a show like Undercover Boss? Where the boss dresses up, he's disguised, and he goes undercover in his company, and he works with um, people on all different levels of the company. And sometimes as you're watching that show, there'll be a time where this boss, is, as he's undercover, he's working with someone, and, and this person is just incredibly rude, or inept, or lazy, or whatever it is. And as you're watching this, you're thinking, if you had any idea who this person was, you would react completely different. It would affect how you act and what you do. And it's almost unbearable to watch sometimes. You feel awful for the person. They have no idea. It's kind of what Jesus is saying here to this woman. If you had any idea who I am, the least of your words would be the rivalry between Jews and Gentiles. Jews and, and Samaritans. The, the least of your worries would be the fact that I'm a man and you're a woman. 
You would be asking me, and I would give you living water. I think it's important to, to break here and to talk about living water. What does Jesus mean by living water? What he means is salvation or eternal life, as we'll come to see. Really, it's a reference to Jeremiah 2.13. It says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that hold no water. The problem here in Jeremiah 2.13 is that God's people have run away from the, from the God who wants to bless them. Who wants to give them everlasting life. The fountain of living water. And they've chosen these broken cisterns. These, these, these pots that can't even hold water. You're running away from the one who can satisfy to these broken, dilapidated pots that, that can't even hold water. God's people have rebelled. They've left. Isaiah 12 is another passage. Isaiah 12 is actually a song that's sung as Messiah comes to reign. At the beginning of the millennial kingdom, as he sits on his throne and he reigns and as he comes in, in verse 3 of Isaiah 12, says that this day will be a day when you with joy will draw water from the wells of salvation. It's again that idea of living waters, satisfaction, salvation, eternal life. The God who you rejected now has come and he has brought this living, this eternal life, this living water, this satisfaction. So between Jeremiah and Isaiah, we see God's people rejecting him. And Isaiah, eventually God's people come and his people are blessed. Jesus here is drawing on this language. I can give you this eternal life. I can give you this satisfaction that never ends. If you would simply understand what is going on here, and believe. But notice how Samaritan woman responds. She still misses the point. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You might ask, well, how did she, how did she miss that point? It seems so clear when Jesus says living water, he's not talking about normal water. It's important to understand the idea of living does not always mean living as we think. It can also carry the idea of continuous. And so the idea then would be fresh or flowing water, a spring as opposed to stagnant water. And so as Jesus is talking about living water, her mind immediately goes to the physical application. She's thinking, well, there's this well that I come to every day with this heavy pot and I have to lower this pot down and get the water or I could just go to a spring I could just dip my pot that seems so much easier so that's where her mind goes she's still missing the bigger point that Jesus is making where do you get that living water where can I get it her focus still is on her immediate need of water while Jesus' focus is on her eternal need of salvation she doesn't see that. In fact, in verse 12, we almost have a, a sarcastic, mocking question. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Who do you think you are? What do you know that no one else has known for thousands of years? If it's true, I want it, but I'm not, I'm not buying it. I'm not believing you. Once again, Jesus answers and says to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks or believes 
Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. Jesus here acknowledged, yes, this water is needing, but the satisfaction that this water gives is fleeting. I am giving you something that is needed even more. That is eternal, that is everlasting, that is never ending. It will satisfy your need for once and for all. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life, welling up, never ending, continual. Notice something else in this passage. That each time Jesus talks about this living water, it is a gift. Look back to verse 10. If you would ask me, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Here in verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, but the water that I shall give him will be in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. This living water, this everlasting life, it's a free gift. Her status as a woman does not matter. Her status as a Samaritan does not matter. Her status in her community does not matter. All that matters is that she believes. That she asks. That she knocks and Jesus will answer. I will give it to you if you will but believe. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Again, she's still not, she's, she's still not getting it. Her focus is still on the physical. I don't want to come here and have to draw water. If there's somewhere else I can go to get water, let me know. She's missing the bigger picture that seems so obvious to us. But she wants to know more. Jesus has her attention. And the question is, where is this conversation going to go now? Is she going to get it? She's, she's interested. She's understanding. As we come to verses 16 to 30, we see then our final point. Jesus' confession. As we come to John 4, 16 to 30, Jesus' conversation continues. She seems interested, she seems ready, she wants to hear more. She may not understand, but she's willing to sit and to listen to Jesus. But what's interesting is where Jesus chooses to go next. He says this, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you have, you have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. See, the question is this, if she, is, if she seems interested, if she seems ready at verse 15, I want to learn more. I'm not really grasping what you're saying, but let's talk some more. Does she seem interested? Why at that point would Jesus bring up such a touchy subject? Why would he bring up something like her relationships, her failed relationships? It seems like he could push her away. What is Jesus trying to accomplish here? Why not jump straight to verse 26 where he says, Hey, I'm the Messiah. I've got the answers you're looking for. Why go this route? Why bring this up? I think the answer is simple. It's because before Jesus can give her the solution, she has to see the problem. Her need goes deeper than her physical thirst. Her soul is longing for satisfaction. And this woman has to see her sin before she can see her Savior. She has to understand that she has a deeper thirst. 
that there is something greater than her physical need for water. Her soul is thirsty. She is longing. She is needy. She is a sinner in need of a Savior. Verse 19, she responds, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. The word prophet there, it's just, it just carries the idea of someone with special insight. She's not here saying, I believe that you are the prophet. I believe that you are Messiah. She's just saying, you've got some insight. I'll give you that. I don't know how you knew that. But she's not yet here connecting the dots. She's not yet realizing who she's talking to. As we read this, it can be shocking at this point. How is she not getting it? It seems so obvious. We have to take ourselves out of our thinking as we read this and put ourselves in her shoes. You see, the, the idea of the Messiah to the Samaritans was not a foreign idea. They were looking for a coming Messiah, too. Their idea was a little bit different than the Jews. But they were looking for him. They were looking to him. They believed he was coming. But you have to assume that this woman figured, when he comes, it'll be obvious. I'll know it. He'll, he'll walk in and everyone will, will flock and will know it and will hear his message. I imagine she was not, imag not thinking that she was just going to accidentally bump into this Messiah at a well one day and, oh, he's here. She's not thinking this way at all. So you can't blame her for not quite getting it yet. Her mind is on the physical, it's on the immediate, it's on her need. Her physical need for water. So she brings up a question in here. Because of your, your prophet, I, I see you've got some special insight. I don't know what's going on here. You're unique. So she has this question. And really here in verse 20, she's, she's kind of changing the subject from her troubled past, from her sin. This man who knows so much, who has so much insight, maybe he can answer this question that's divided the Jews and Samaritans for so long. If you're so smart, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. You see, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Samaritans believed only in the Pentateuch. Only in the first few books of the Bible. And so as they are reading those, they come to the conclusion that Mount Gerizim, where, where Abraham worshipped God and where Jacob worshipped God, that is where we should build our shrine. That is where we should worship. The Jews who have the rest of the Old Testament, it becomes obvious to them, no, it should be at Jerusalem. But you have this split, you have this division. The Samaritans think that, that they are right, worshipping on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews think that they are right, worshipping in Jerusalem. And so if there's this split, if there's this misunderstanding, and you're so smart, here's a question for you. Who's right? So Jesus answers, he says, we're a woman. Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. The first part of Jesus' answer here was probably a little bit shocking to her. What he's saying is this, the physical location of Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim, these two places that we hold as, as holy places, as places that we come to worship, they're going to be obsolete. Really, it's not going to matter whether Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. Why? Well, it continues, verse 22. You worship what you do not know, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Here, he, he kind of does answer a question. You and you Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. That's not really an insult, but, but what he's saying is this. Because you as the Samaritans reject 
a large portion of God's revelation in the Old Testament, you don't have the full story. You don't have the real picture. You really don't know what you're worshiping. But we Jews, we know what we worship. Salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews on, on more than one way. God revealed His truth to the Jews. The Messiah comes through the Jews. Romans 3, 1-8, Paul is writing and, and, and an objection to Paul's message is this. Well, well, what's so unique about the Jews then? If we're all sinners and we all need salvation, what's so unique about the Jews? And Paul says, lots. They're special. They're unique. The promises and the covenants were given to them. It's kind of what Jesus is touching on here. But, verse 23, the hour is coming, and now is. The hour is coming, Christ's death, His resurrection, His ascension. The reason why He's here, it's coming. In fact, it now is. I, sorry, I'm standing before you, I'm here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Your question is about where to worship, and the real answer is not really going to matter. It's not about where. It's about who you worship and how you worship Him. The Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. He's not bound to one place. And those who worship Him must worship Him as He is, in spirit and in truth. Worship of God is not about external conformity. It's not about where you worship. It's not about what you wear when you worship. It's about your heart. It's the right inward heart attitude as you worship. Not where do you approach God, how do you approach God. Let's come to verse 25. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. It seems almost here that she's, she's not satisfied quite with his answer. She, she essentially is saying, huh, well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Reminds me when, when I can hear my kids arguing upstairs or in the backyard. And they're going back and forth, and then finally one of them will go, Dad! Mom! Someone else, someone smarter, someone greater, someone who actually knows, they'll settle this argument. It's kind of what it seems like she's saying here. Jesus gives her this answer. He addresses her question. Well, Messiah's coming. He'll tell us all things. But what she didn't count on is Jesus' response to that. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Imagine how shocking that had to be to her. I am the one who is talking to you. I am the Messiah. It's one of the clearest, clearest pronouncements of Jesus' identity by Jesus himself. I am He. And when you really think about this, what's phenomenal about this is that just a chapter earlier, Jesus has interacted with religious leaders at the highest class, at people of all levels of society, and yet here, he saves his greatest, his, his clearest revelation for a Samaritan woman alone at a well. I am he. And here we see the humanity of Christ at the beginning of John 4. Who is tired, who is thirsty, who is hungry. And his deity. I am the Messiah. I am the Word made flesh. I am the Christ. I who speak to you am he. What a shocking response. She was not expecting that. 
she's not talking just to a prophet. She's talking to the Word made flesh, to the Christ. At this point in the story, after Jesus' confession of his identity as the Son of God, after explaining all this to her, at this point, his disciples come. And they marveled, they talked with the woman, yet no one said to him, what do you seek, or what do you, why are you talking with her? His disciples, as they come back, they're just as surprised as she was. What is Jesus doing? They don't ask him, though. But in verse 28, we have the response of the woman. The woman then left her water pot. Doesn't give us any hint why she left her water pot. It could be because she knew she was coming back. It could be because she had something more important on her mind. Maybe it's a hint that she's finally understood what Jesus was getting at this whole time. She is offering me something that is greater than my need for physical water. So she leaves her water pot. She went back to the city and she says to the men, Come and see the man who, who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. When it finally clicks, when she finally gets it, and she finally understands what Jesus has been talking about this entire time, she cannot help but go and get others. Those who see the light bring others to the light. It's the right response. If this is really the Messiah, if he's who he says he is, I've got to tell everybody. And so she runs, and she brings the whole city to Jesus. As I mentioned before, John 4 is all about Jesus. It's not about the Samaritan woman. It's about the Word made flesh. It's about Jesus' compassion for this woman. Jesus' identity as the Son of God, and really the application, as we've seen every single week, the whole point of John is that you believe. Jesus can offer this woman lasting satisfaction that no water and no relationship can because of who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. So my question this morning, brothers and sisters, is this. Do you have a greater need? Are you like the Samaritan woman? Is your soul thirsty for something more? Is your soul dry and parched? I would plead with you this morning in this passage to see that there is something greater. Your search for satisfaction does not end in the perfect game of golf. It does not end on a day when everything is perfectly aligned. It does not end with the perfect cup of coffee or whatever it is that brings you fleeting satisfaction. Christ alone because your greatest need is not to shoot a great game of golf. Your greatest need is to be saved from your sins. Turn to Jesus today and find the satisfaction that you long for. For He alone can give you living water. Maybe you've already believed. Maybe you're, you're already in Christ. And yet maybe you've wandered. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe you find yourself trying to find satisfaction in things that can't give satisfaction. To you, I would call you again to turn your eyes to Jesus. He alone can fulfill your greatest need. So the first application question would be this then. 
If you're honest with yourself, where do you look for satisfaction? And what do you need to change? What is taking your attention away from Christ? True satisfaction is found in Christ alone. Your greatest need is your need of a Savior. And if you have not, I would plead with you this, this morning, turn from your sin and turn to Christ. It's a free gift, as we saw in this chapter. There's nothing the Samaritan woman had to do. She just had to believe. Just get it. Just believe. As Jesus said in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew what God could give you, and if you knew who I was, you would ask me for a drink and I would give it to you. Do you see that this morning, and will you ask? If not, I would encourage you. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, I would encourage you this morning, turn to the only one who can satisfy your greatest need. Turn from your sin, and turn to Jesus Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Word made flesh. We thank you that even in our sin, you sent your Son to give us this living water, this everlasting life, to give it to us as a gift if we will but believe. And Father, if there's anyone under the sound of my voice who have not placed their faith in Christ, may today be the day that they do that. May today be the day that they turn from their sins, from their efforts, and turn to Christ alone in His finished work on the cross. Father, maybe there's those who are already in Christ, and yet they've strayed. They've turned from the source of true, everlasting satisfaction and they're seeking satisfaction in this life. And even through this message, you grab their attention. Reorient them. Open their eyes. Help them to see their sin. To turn again to Christ. We pray that you would be honored in all this. In Jesus' name, amen.